Well, it is a joy to welcome you today, uh, those who are here at the 930 service, those at the Well and the Well Cafe. If we haven't met, my name is David, and I serve as a senior pastor here. It's great to be with you today. If you have your Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to open that to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, Nehemiah 6. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, or if you don't have confidence that you could find Nehemiah, you can uh, grab one of the blue Bibles that we have available for you. Nehemiah 6 is on page 753 in those Bibles that we have for you in all of our worship spaces. Today, uh, I'm gonna be sharing with you the final message of this series, New Year. Uh, we started this several weeks ago with, with this idea, uh, the goal of helping, uh, helping all of us launch well into a new year. Uh, and we shared this series with this recognition that for most of us, when we think about the rhythm of our life, a new year really begins for us in conjunction with a school year rather than a calendar year. And so again, we wanted to inspire and, and encourage all of us to launch well into a brand new year. Uh, but before we uh, get it too far into that, uh, our last message of the series, I want to just give you a sneak peek of what we're going to be sharing with you next week. I got together with a couple friends this week and uh, uh, we filmed the video for you to just highlight uh, the next series that's starting. So I hope you enjoy this. Are you ready for some football? Football. Football. Who? What? Me? What? Are you ready for some football? Is he talking to us? Can't hear you. What? That's right, fellas. What's more fall than Friday Night Lights? The marching band coming in, getting everybody excited. Everyone going crazy. The football team running onto the field. An entire community coming together for the big Friday night game. Homecoming moms the size of Texas. This is what the fall is all about. Are you ready for some football? Are you talking to him? Are you talking to me? Should we come down there? Exactly, guys, and that's why our new fall series, Homecoming, is gonna talk about the excitement of a new season, the power of sharing life with a team, experiencing a big loss, experiencing a big win. All throughout this series, we'll be all around our community hosting tailgates. We'll have t-shirts with your favorite team colors as we celebrate the fall together. This series is gonna be so much fun. What could possibly go wrong? Homecoming, baby! Welcome home! That's right! This is our house! It's a very, very fine house. Two cats in the yard. Not everything's easy because of you. You okay, dude? I, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. No pastors were heard in the filming of that video, just so, so you know. Uh, I feel the need to say my name is David Alexander and I approve that message. So there, that's what we're starting next week. Hope you'll be with us. Uh, we're talking about uh, homecoming. We're talking about the power of finding, finding a home. And uh, we're looking forward to, to that series. We'll have that video on Facebook uh, and other social media so you can share that with your friends. We'll also have some outtakes for you, which are even more fun. So you can enjoy those uh, as well. Uh, teach us to number our days. Psalm 90.12 says, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's the scripture I've shared with you each week of this series. The encouragement to consider uh, that if you don't understand the limits of your life, you run the risk of wasting your life. That if you want your days to count, you need to be sure and count your days. Understanding that there is a limit to your life, there's a scope to your life, and every single day matters. What we do with our lives matter. And so part of stepping into a new year well is recognizing 
recognizing that limit and embracing the opportunity that we have in the day that is present for us this particular day. And we're going to wrap up by looking at a biblical character who lived this out well. He lived it out so well we named a book of the Bible after him. So Nehemiah, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit. No one thought that was funny last night either. I, I, it's a joke. We don't, that's not where the names came from. Anyways, so Nehemiah, let me tell you a little bit about his life and the context of his life. So a little bit of history. If you don't like the history channel, I promise this won't hurt too bad, okay? So King David, know that guy, right? He wrote lots of the Psalms. He was king of Israel. Several generations after David's reign, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. And the result of that was that the two kingdoms separate were not as strong as they were together. They became vulnerable to the nations surrounding them, nations that were interested in expanding their territory. And so in 722 BC, the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. They conquered the northern kingdom. 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. Now, it was the practice of the Babylonians in the territories that they conquered to relocate, to do the forced relocation of those who lived in that area of the, the conquered land into other parts of the Babylonian Empire. And that happened in the case of the southern kingdom. And so the Jews living in the southern kingdom of Judah were forced from their homes, forced to relocate in other parts of, of Babylon. Now, it wasn't too long before the Persians came in and the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And though the Persians didn't give back the land to Israel, the Persians did allow some of the Jews to return to their homes. Many of them did, uh, but some of them did not. Nehemiah was one who was born in exile. He grew up uh, in, in a, uh, not in Jerusalem, not, not in the southern kingdom. He grew up in, in another area of Babylon. And he, as he grew in his life, he became a servant of the king of Persia, a, a cupbearer to the, to the king of Persia. And when the story begins at the beginning of Nehemiah, uh, he has just learned about the peril that the remnant of Israel is in, those who have gone back to Jerusalem and are seeking to rebuild their life there. He's, he's learned of the insecurity that they are experiencing and God calls him, he feels a deep conviction to go back and to invest in, in rebuilding the ancient city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah goes to the king who he serves and he asks him to give his blessing to this work, to allow him to leave his post, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city walls. And evidently Nehemiah was such a good servant that not only did the king say yes, the king sent him with documentation of his support and he also sent him with timber, with the resources that he would need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So that's where Nehemiah went. Now, Nehemiah experienced something next that you probably experienced in your life. You had a great idea, and you shared it with somebody else, and they thought it was a great idea. And then you went about doing the work, and what you realized is that not everyone agreed that it was a great idea. All of a sudden, adversaries were revealed. There were people who were not quite as excited about the idea as you were. That's what happened in the case of Nehemiah. Nehemiah learned that increasing the security for those living in Jerusalem was a threat to some other people who didn't want to see that happen. And so what I'm going to read to you in Nehemiah 6, we're going to see how the adversaries begin to work. Uh, this is actually later in, in, in their constant badgering, seeking to, to distract Nehemiah from this great work. Uh, Nehemiah 6, beginning verses, uh, with verse 1, it says this, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, 
Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. And so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. And then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You were just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for their work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So Nehemiah had felt a conviction, he'd felt a call, and he made a decision. He made a decision to go to the king to share a bold request, hoping that he would release him from his service to go do this great work. The, the king had given him his blessing, had sent his support, had sent the resources. He'd come to Jerusalem, he'd met the remnant for the first time and invited them to be a part of this great work, and the great work was being done. And at the end of all of those great decisions, here come the adversaries offering to Nehemiah the opportunity to be distracted from this great work. Now something similar happens in the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, this is right before the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of the most extensive teachings of Jesus that we have in any of the four Gospels. Everything was about to begin, but before the public ministry of Jesus begins, he first faces a great challenge. Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized, and after the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased and then Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 then the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and in the wilderness Jesus faced temptation temptation offered by the devil by the adversary and the temptation that was offered to Jesus was not to turn around 180 degrees and go in a whole different direction it was instead three opportunities to be distracted from the great work of his life. And just as we see in the life of Nehemiah, so we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus uh, responded by simply saying, I will not be distracted. I am not going down. I am going to do a great work. I want nothing to do with what you're offering to me. So I want to lay those two stories side by side for you for a couple of reasons. The first is I want to make a suggestion to you as you think about a new year and you think about your life and what the, what the scope of your life will be, what the, what the capacity of your life will be. I want to suggest to you that, that the determining factor for your future, for my future, is not making wise decisions, but avoiding life's inevitable distractions. That that's the determining factor for your future and for my future. It's not making wise decisions, but it's avoiding life's inevitable distractions. Because you actually have the capacity to make wise decisions. Do you know that? 
You make wise decisions all the time. You have a great capacity to make wise decisions. What we wrestle with and struggle with is the capacity to avoid the distraction that comes along that leads us in a different way. That's the first thing I want to suggest to you, and that's the first reason I want to lay those two stories next to one another. But the second reason is this. I, I, want, I want you to hear just what my perspective is on this, and yours may be different, but, but I want you to know that I really believe this. I believe that there is an adversary at work in your life. And what that adversary wants to do more than anything else in your life is to distract your life from what is the great work of your life. The goal of the adversary in most instances isn't to get you to turn around 180 degrees to make a radically new decision about where you're going to go with your future. The, 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 the work of the adversary is to simply invite you to take one step off the path that you were heading down. The primary weapon of the adversary is the weapon of distraction. And so today what I want to do is I want to call out and name three of the ways that I believe I have seen in my own life and the lives of others the way in which the adversary seeks to distract us from the great work that God has called us to do in our life. To settle for a life that is less than the life that God has called us to be. To wander one step, then two steps, then three steps from the path of where our life is meant to go. So here's the first idea, that we are threatened by the, the threat of urgency and the absence of clarity. So there's a reason that we all believe in speed limits. Now you don't always follow them, you could admit that, right? You, you, you sometimes treat those as suggestions for the range of speed at which you should travel, right? I mean, we all sort of do that. No one's laughing right now, but thank you, I appreciate it. I, I do it, you do it, we can all admit that, right? We, we kind of have this, but I can go five miles over. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, um, whatever. So, but we all believe that speed limits are a good thing. We all know that at some point, it gets ridiculous. At some point, the danger gets too great. At some point, the car is moving too fast and the, and the opportunity to make a mistake increases and the, and the capacity of those mistakes changes as well. There's a reason that we believe in speed limits. If that doesn't make sense to you, you might just think about it this way and you can have some fun today and just Google this. Just Google funny treadmill videos. You know, people on the treadmill who are just turning up the speed, like, oh, this is no big deal, you know, and then all of a sudden they, there's a disaster because there is a pace at which you travel that is not sustainable. A mistake is going to be made. And the urgency of our life, uh, the pace of our life is one of the ways in which we find ourselves so easily distracted. And when life is lived at a pace that is simply too fast, and we do not have the clarity on what our life is really all about, Ur the urgency of life will always win. In the absence of clarity, urgency always wins. Nehemiah had the capacity to say, I'm not going down, because he knew what the work of his life was. He'd already made the decision. He'd already moved in a particular direction. He had dedicated himself to the work that he was doing. And because he had clarity on that work, it was easy for him to say, this is not, this is not important. John Ortberg in his book, Soul Keeping, quotes the late Dallas Willard who says this, 
Hurry is an enemy of the spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Have you ever noticed how the busier you are, the easier it is for you to be distracted? It doesn't make any logical sense when you think about it, but practically you know it's true because you're living at a pace in your life that you were never meant to sustain. And the threat of urgency of, of what is pressing in on you is part, of, is part of the way that the adversary works in your life to move you off course, to invite you to just go in a slightly different direction that will end up taking you to a very different destination than you intended to go. The threat of urgency and the absence of clarity. The second thing is anxiety and fear that are both amplified by hurt and sin. Jesus says, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. Look at the flowers of the field. See the splendor in which God clothes them. They do not labor or toil. And yet God takes care of them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? But seek first his kingdom. Seek first God. Peter writes in his letter, cast all your anxieties on Christ. For he cares for you. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything present your requests to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. John writes in his letter, there is no fear in love for perfect love drives out fear. And yet how much of our life is driven by anxiety and by fear? How much energy in your life is wasted by anxiety and fear? Energy that could go to building and blessing and doing the good work that God has called you to do, but instead day by day and week by week and year by year, it's consistently wasted because of anxiety and fear. Again, cast all your anxieties upon Christ because he cares for you. But how often the adversary works to raise in us that question, does he really care? Does he really know you? Does your life really matter? Are you really capable of doing any good? Is God's power really sufficient to sustain you in this difficult season of your life? The way in which those lies are, are very carefully uh, planted in your heart and your mind that, that leads you into deeper anxiety and fear. And, and do, you, do you have an awareness of how hurt and sin only amplify that fear? Think about walking with a limp. You twist your ankle and it's this ankle, but all of a sudden this leg hurts. Walking wounded, all of a sudden uh, the, the, the whole body is broken down because the hurt begins to amplify itself when it goes long, so long without being healed. And the hurt that we experience is often a result of sin. Sometimes it's our decisions, but sometimes it's things that we had nothing to do with. It was a decision that somebody else made, but a hurt that doesn't find healing only increases this anxiety and fear in our life, and it's another thing that the adversary uses to take you off your course. Here's the third thing. Third thing is one simple word. The word is division. 
And all three of these are things that are applicable to all people living in all times. But I want to suggest to you that when it comes to the work of the adversary and it comes to our, our particular place and our particular time, this is one of the ways that the adversary is winning in the hearts and minds of too many people in our world today. The threat of division, the, the distraction of division. John 17, at the end of the Last Supper, before his arrest, Jesus prays. And one of the things that Jesus prayed for on that night, according to John 17, is he prayed for his disciples. So he just shared the meal with them, and, and, and after that, he prays for them so that they will have the strength to face what the next few days will bring, that they will be able to sustain themselves in the midst of the shock of losing him, of his, of his arrest and his trial, his condemnation and his crucifixion. But he doesn't just pray for those who shared that meal. In the midst of that prayer, he says, I not only pray for them, but I pray for those who will come to believe in me through them. In other words, Jesus prays for you. And Jesus prayed for me on the night that he was arrested on the eve of his crucifixion. He prayed for you and he prayed for me. And he prayed something very specific for all of us. His prayer was this, that they may be one. That was the prayer of Jesus. He could have prayed anything, but that was his prayer, that they may be one. So just in case you're keeping score, okay, you wanna know how this, this whole thing works. Jesus prays for unity and the adversary works to divide. Jesus prays for unity and the adversary works to divide. Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is seeking to bring us into unity with one another, seeking to restore relationships, bring healing, bring hope, bring restoration. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the prayer of Jesus, that they may be one. The adversary works against that. The adversary works to divide. The, the adversary works to convince us that there is too much that separates us than unites us. The adversary works to convince us that there is something so much different about another person that they're really not even the same type of person that we are. There's something less than we are. Jesus prays for unity to bring people together. The adversary works to divide. And let me just give you one particular expression of that. I have, as of yesterday, I haven't checked this morning, may have fewer today, I don't know. I have 2,655 friends on Facebook and most of them are you. Which means that on the first day of school, when that day comes around, my newsfeed is filled with pictures. I mean, all the pictures of all the kids. I get to see those super, super cute pictures of the three-year-old or the four-year-old or the second grader as they hold up the chalkboard. Here I am, first day of school. And they're smiling so big and so excited. And I get to see those pictures of the 17 or 18-year-old son or daughter who stares back in disgust at mom and dad as they're taking my picture again. I get to see some of those pictures that your college kids send back to mom and dad because they've, you know, they've gone away and so now they've forgiven you, you know, and they feel bad for you and so they send you a picture of their first day of that semester, you know what I'm talking about? I, it's full of all of those pictures. This is a great day. I love the first day of school because I have 2,655 friends on Facebook. But because I have 2,655 friends on Facebook, here's what I also see. I also see what happens when anger and fear 
desire expression in the wake of a school shooting or when everyone feels like they just need the world to know about their opinion about a marketing campaign of a shoe company. It just goes crazy. And I can't tell you how many times, how many times my heart breaks because I see the way the adversary turns us against one another and the way in which we find ourselves demonizing one another and dehumanizing one another and, and spouting off something about this, this, this made up fictitious enemy that is summarized so perfectly for us in a label of a particular group of people that we throw out there into the world. We think of all the problems in the world and we finally have figured out where, what the solution is. It's these people, it's them. It's what they think, it's what they're doing, it's their perspective. And because I have 2,655 friends on Facebook and because most of them are you, I know that the very people that are often condemned in those responses are the same people who come to the same altar that you do to pray. And that shouldn't be the case. James says it this way, just in case you think this is a new problem, here's what James says. With the same mouth we praise our Creator and we curse other human beings who were also created in God's likeness. And James says, that shouldn't be so. Because it undermines the great work of your life. It damages relationships. And it cripples the ministry of the church. It cripples the witness of our faith. It undermines the integrity of the work that we do in the world. It creates a new stumbling block and a boundary for someone who is on the brink of discovering a brand new life. It's a simple match. It lights what we perceive to be a small fire, but it grows too quickly into a raging flame. And so on behalf of the prayer that Jesus prays, the work that the Spirit is doing in our life, on behalf of the mission of the church, and most especially uh, for the sake of the capacity of your life, stop it. Change the channel. Practice self-control. Don't sacrifice. Don't sacrifice the great work of your life for something that is so much less. Now, some of you are thinking, I, you know, I'm just, I do my best to stay out of it. <laughs> You've become an expert at changing the subject, right? That's what I've done. But the conviction that I feel is that I am also complicit in my silence. Because when we don't have the courage to speak truth and love, we're just letting the adversary win. And whether it's hurry or anxiety or fear or division, 
I am tired of seeing the adversary win in the hearts and minds of people that I love. And so I want to challenge you to think about what Jesus is praying for you and for me, for our world, and the way in which the adversary in his, in, in his undermining ways is seeking to divide us and separate us from one another. I want to show you just a, a picture of what is lost, the, the, uh, an understanding of, uh, of, of what we're really supposed to be about. This is a picture that I snapped several years ago um, of a place here in our own community. And last Sunday, um, last Sunday afternoon, we had a special time of prayer and celebration in this location. So let me tell you what this is. This is a fence uh, that divides uh, at, at the Mansfield Cemetery that served as a divide between those uh, from the white community who were buried in this side of the cemetery and those from the African-American community who were buried on this side of the cemetery. That fence up until two weeks ago, or a little less than two weeks ago, was still standing. A symbol of a past here in our community that we don't talk about very often. We live in a great community, but there are aspects of our community, of aspects of our history that that are difficult for us to talk about. And this is one of them. And it's also hard to talk about that just a few years ago, there were, uh, there were people who worked to remove this fence and they were unsuccessful. They failed in that effort. And so those who gave that energy and that time to, to do that, including our mayor, they committed themselves to a season of prayer, to simply praying that this would change that one day that fence would come down. Uh, They committed themselves to to building relationships and working with people and talking and listening and doing all that they could in prayer and and in the life that they lived to to see that great work accomplished. And now that fence is gone. Many years later, that fence is gone. So we gathered out there and we had a great time of of prayer and celebration. It was real brief because it was hot. We got in a big circle and, and we sang and then we said a prayer and then we were dismissed to go back to our work. And one of the things that I, I was just so encouraged by and, and, and I felt like God laid on my heart was in a world that feels so divided, in a world where we, uh, I feel like we're constantly just bombarded with messages about enemies and adversaries and everything's just going. In the midst of that world, that fence is gone. And it's gone not because people argued with one another and yelled at one another and just beat each other into submission, but because people of, people of faith prayed and they built relationship learned people's names, they heard their stories, they, they shared their own perspective in humility and in love. And that's the capacity of your life. That's the capacity of the church. That's the great work that God has called us to do. And so with the witness of Nehemiah and, and with the example of Jesus, what I want you to hear today is this. Today we begin a new year. Today is a new day. There is hope for a tomorrow that is different than today if we will stay faithful to doing the great work 
that God has called us to do. Let's pray. Loving God, we first give you thanks that you have given us the honor of partnering with you. That you, Lord, have given us the honor of being a part of your family. And as we give you thanks for that, Lord, we also recognize and must confess that we have at times misunderstood just how large this family is. And we, Lord, have found ourselves in intentional and perhaps, Lord, even in unintentional ways, distancing ourselves from those whom you also love and who you call us to love as well. And so today, Lord, I pray for each of us an increased measure of your grace in our life and in our relationship with one another. I pray, Lord, that you will give some of us the capacity, the, uh, that you will give us the courage this week, Lord, to say, I am sorry and mean it in a new way. That, Lord, you will give to some of us the capacity to hear those words and out of uh, hurt and sin uh, to, to, uh, to, to maybe be tempted, Lord, to respond with more anger, but but in step with your spirit and in line with your grace to receive them as a first step to healing. I pray, Lord, that you will give us a clear understanding of what our great work is, that you would enable us to slow down, to be reminded that you care for us, and also, Lord, aware of how deceptive and dangerous our adversary can be. We commit these things to you in the name of Jesus, thinking of all that he did to give life to us, so Lord, help us to share life with others. In Jesus' name, amen.